Hey there. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few weeks and, um, you know, it's been hit or miss all year, hasn't it? Uh, my year has gotten extremely busy. And so uh, some of you know the story behind that. Some of you don't, but it's okay. I'm not going to re-explain that here. Um, but I am excited to have this for you. And so years ago, uh, Oscar Romero was um, given a sainthood status uh, by the Catholic Church. And so what happened was I had questions. I reached out to a friend of mine, Paul Thomas Darzelek, who kind of walked me through the history of that because he, in different ways, lived parts of it and is connected to it in ways that I am not. Sainthood as well is something that just confuses me as a person, uh, less so now, but still a little bit. And so I reached out to him. I had questions. And because of the generosity of the kind of person that he is, he recorded the answer and sent it to me. And it was multiple hours long, which is really cool. I mixed that and broke it apart and decided to share it with the world. And so for some of you, that would have been back in the first year of the episodes. You would have heard it intermixed with a conversation about prophecy in the Old Testament with Walter Brueggemann. But for everyone else, parts two, three, and four were never really heard because I had that blocked behind the paywall of Patreon. And the more that I thought about that, I don't like that. As many of you know that are on Patreon, I have slowed down producing content as much there, uh, though I am still extremely grateful for the people there because they continue to allow this to happen. I'm still mulling over how I best want to use the time and energy it takes for the podcast to continue to be a thing as my time and energy is being pulled in other directions. A lot of that is because my kids are older. Uh, again, when I started this show, I only had two kids and one that was like an infant. So I had three kids. Uh, but now one of my kids is a teenager and they're all doing different things. And it's been a lot of years. It's crazy to think how long that this has been a deal. And thank each and every single one of you for that. Either way, I'm digressing. So I put episodes two, three, and four on Patreon, and not a lot of people have heard those. But this is a story I think that needs to be heard. I had intended to release this around the middle of October, because that is the anniversary of when Oscar Romero was sainted. I don't think that that's the way that you say that, but I've said that and I'm not going to fix it. So that's what it is. And so what I'm going to do is over the next month, instead of doing bi-weekly episodes, we are going to do weekly episodes because I don't want to stretch this out for two months, but I'm going to give you all four of these. And so I think it's a cool story. And I'm really thankful that Paul put it together. I am also not going to fix the past editing. And so if it sounds different, it's because it was recorded on a different system and setup. And, and uh, yeah, so here we go, a four part series. I hope that you come back next week. And if you learn anything from this, and honestly, I'm going to listen to it again because it's been long enough that I don't remember a lot of a lot of it. Email me, email the show, shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter or the, the places that you shoot messages at. I would love to hear what you're learning from it. Share it with a friend. It's an amazing story.
How long was the tension at the time? The tension had been building for throughout the late 70s, second half of that decade, and then the straw broke the camel's back in 1980. Romero's assassination, it's a, these points are never you know, too firm, but that's as firm a point as any of the onset of the war. Is that tension gone now? Well, when the peace accords were signed in 1992, elements of the FMLN and the government did a pretty good job of integrating and people were allowed to vote. And indeed, they wanted to vote for the people that our government was calling the communists. And, you know, in 1996, four years after the war, they took the majority of seats on the legislative assembly. Is it gone now? It exists in the form, you know, it's more, it looks a lot more like the Republicans versus the Democrats. They hate each other's guts. Everybody's had a chance to get in power long enough to demonstrate that they're corrupt once you get in power. A revolution like this often starts with very pure ideologies, and war kind of kills off the pure, and the the people who kill rise to the top. War has a way of corrupting. Power has a way of corrupting. It was very disheartening. Everybody thought they were bringing about the new society, and finally you get some representatives, and then they kind of, it's representative democracy, and it's compromise, and it's people wanting to keep their seat on the legislative assembly because, oh, isn't it nice and important and part of the government now? And it's, you know, compromise. And then a lot of people kind of lost heart. One interesting thing, though, the people who empathize with the poor and their struggle for, you know, to prosper in the world, people who were motivated by political vision. When I lived there sometime like 96, 97, 98, there was this, like, the heart sinks. We, we were not bringing about the new society. But I noticed that people whose motivation for social justice was their faith, they tended to keep on trucking. They saw themselves contextualized in a story, in a revolution that started 2,000 years ago and continue past the end of my life. Those were the people who got less disheartened than people whose motivation was purely political. I'm going to bring about this change. So yeah, there's animosity between the, the parties, but they also work together. You know, it's, it's, um, it kind of did a remarkably good job. I mean, they, I've personally, as a translator, worked and across the hall. The aisle there, you would think, would be a lot bigger, but I've seen people working together. Has the church grown since Romero? Right after Romero's assassination, there was people signed up to be priests because he was such a hero to them. And there was a bit of growth in the clergy. The question can only be asked within the even larger context of a Catholic church that's it's just dwindling in the world in a, in a way. I mean, it's facing a shortage of priests. After the war, because so many Catholics were focused on social justice and because social justice in that environment meant putting your neck on the line and it meant being brave, it meant standing for justice, it meant things that get really, really tiring. And there was a big movement, an exodus of the church towards um, evangelical churches. Anything that I can say in the time frame that I want to talk right now is a vast oversimplification. But the Catholic Church in El Salvador has lots of places in the world, and this is true of large traditional congregational churches, 
in general is um, losing members. There's a correlative uptick in evangelical churches. Some of that is just, it's seminaries of, you know, it's, it's my friend's dad, Juan Bueno, just setting up a Christian bookstore and then a seminary school. And then suddenly, you know, it was like, people are like, whoa, hey man, here's a church that I can actually participate in. I don't, I can go to this, you know, I can go to this seminary that's taking place at the bookstore. And after a couple of years of training, I, I can, I can be a Christian and, you know, they've set me up with why this is the right way to do it. And the Catholic church is the wrong way to do it. And, and so there is an uptick in tabernaculo, Bautista, some Baptist churches, a lot of Pentecostal churches. There was a strong movement for a time, just post-war time, where people said, I don't want to be a part of the church that's telling me to build the kingdom of God, because that looks like hard work. And, and there was a time where I worked with evangelical churches who said, if you want to do something for the benefit of the community, that's wrong, like drilling a water well so people can have water to drink. There were post years where, you know, the, the two world religions in El Salvador are evangelical and Catholic, or they'll say Christian or Catholic. Are you Christian or are you Catholic? And uh, Catholics are the ones who might get involved in something that benefits the community, and Christians do not participate in things of this world, cosas del mundo. They would say, uh, yeah, yeah, you want to you wanna build that well? Well, we can't participate. We only participate in spiritual things, not worldly things. I ran into that a number of times. You know, it, during a certain window of time, there was, you know, you want to go drill a water well so that, like, children are not dying while because they drink mud. And, and people from the newly planted Pentecostal evangelical church would say, you know, you got to work with the Catholics if you want to do something like that because it's a thing of this world and we only work on spiritual things. Some of that, too, you know, is that uh, Pentecostal church gives you a cathartic outlet. There's so much pain in the war, and so these kind of ministries that focus on the gifts of the Spirit, just an appropriate pause to, like, I don't want to hear about my social responsibility or structural sin or all of these things. Just give me something uh, that I feel in my heart and and that it that is, you know, in their words, spiritual. Um, the counterpoint, and thankfully, among evangelical churches, uh, there was congruent to all of this uh, a movement called the integral mission of the church. So, you know, while the Catholic Church was turning itself upside down and saying, hey, maybe the people really are the church and we exist to serve them, uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a movement in evangelicalism. You know, evangelicals are from around the world, from 71 different countries that gathered. It, it was in 1966 at the Congress on the World Mission of the Church, and they started to acknowledge that a lot of our churches have fallen into an unscriptural isolation from the world. Um, we talk about, you know, social programs on the one hand and then the gospel on the other as though the gospel is just kind of uh, convincing people to proclaim fidelity to Jesus so that they can get into heaven when they die and doesn't put all aspects of life under the lordship of Jesus. And so then this kind of smoldered and it was an intellectual movement for a while, very notably in Hurricane Mitch in the late 
late 90s, the integral mission of the church really started to take hold, and, and a lot of these smaller evangelical churches that had previously exempted themselves from cosas del mundo, things of this world, well, now their neighbors' houses were in shambles because of this hurricane, and stood up to the plate and saw Christ in the least of these, saw that Matthew 25 stuff in their neighbors and and said, you know what? Yes, we do see Jesus in the least of these and feed him and give him water and company and clothes and things like that. All right, so some of that retrospective stuff might have got a little bit jumbled in the process, but so be it. On to our last topic of conversation, which are the questions about canonization and what the heck did that solar halo in the sky over the beatification of Romero mean? First question is, what exactly is canonization and why does it matter? Now, I want to qualify this by saying I'm giving a kind of a user's perspective. I don't represent the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic, didn't remain one. I didn't, uh, I didn't like, I wasn't hurt by the Catholic Church. I just ended up living an interdenominational, ecumenical lifestyle. Um, and I've got like zero congregational fidelity. I just never have. When I was a little child and my feet did not reach the ground from, you know, in the church pew, and I would hear the grown-up say, you know, something about papal infallibility, I just, I felt like, oh, there's the grown-ups being silly. Again, I, I never, all those things you look at the Catholic Church and go, that seems zany, well, when I was seven, that seemed zany. You know, the grown-ups just do what they do, you know. I say that to say that's the perspective I'm coming from. I can tell you a little bit about, you know, in my entire adult life, I've been a member of a variety of churches, um, and I've worked tons with, mostly with evangelical churches in El Salvador, largely with Pentecostal Assemblies of God churches and Baptist churches, just because that's that's what there was. That Those are the people, you know, the Catholic Church would be a place that gathers dust except for once a month when the priest comes. And then you've got these kingdom people. Who are you going to partner with? Um, you know, we my work there was to partner with churches, to drill water wells, to provide an oasis for people who, who needed safe drinking water. But I can give you a little bit about kind of the you know, user experience of what the heck is a saint. What is canonization? Canonization is the process. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, I say that, but Anglicans canonize people. Eastern Orthodox churches canonizes people. The Oriental Orthodox or Arminian Church, they have saints and they have a canonization process. The United Methodist Church, you know, names people saints. So uh, canonization and a process of becoming a saint isn't uh, just a Catholic thing. It's something that the historic churches all do. My understanding of it is, you know, it started individual local churches. In the early church would basically canonize people. It started as recognizing who's a martyr. In the early church, there were people being killed for their faith in Jesus. People who were refusing 
to sacrifice to Caesar. And they were being killed. And, and, and so certain communities started saying, well, a lot of people are getting killed. We need to have some criteria. And how do we recognize someone as a martyr? A saint? Yeah, that's another question. What's a saint? Some, a saint is someone recognized as having an exceptional degree of holiness or likeness to God or likeness to Jesus. Again, I don't speak for the Catholic Church. I can say, though, there is a notion of the sainthood of all believers in the Catholic Catechism. That's kind of the big, gigantic book that no Catholic actually really looks into. I say no Catholic, but most don't. There is a notion of the sainthood of all believers. So I've heard people say, well, that's what we believe in. We don't believe in individual saints. But there is also this special designation of sainthood, and that is a designation... It's just the application of some rigor to the process of saying, hey, this is a man or a woman whose likeness to God needs to be celebrated for all time. Initially, in the early church, before all our schisms, this was done without a process. And then people recognize, okay, we need to have a process of recognizing who, who the martyrs are. Um, Augustine of Hippo describes a process in the 5th century, so then that would be now the post-Constantine church going like, all right, you know, let's decide this in the way that Rome did. You know, when Julius Caesar died, uh, the Senate declared him not a saint, but a god. It happened like within 30 days after his death. And incidentally, there was a comet. And so his Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, who you might know as Augustus Caesar, there was a big comet that appeared in the sky, and it was bright. People could see it day and night. Octavian took advantage of that, and he said, you know, that is the soul of Julius Caesar being welcomed by the gods, you know, and people believed it, and it lent credence to Julius Caesar being a god, and which meant... Augustus Caesar was then who? A son of God, D.V. Phileas. He stamped it on his coins. Jesus spent coins that said, Augustus Caesar, son of God. So in a way that, you know, the government, the Senate might recognize that Julius Caesar was a god, I guess the church in Rome would decide, okay, who, who, who is a saint among these martyrs? And I don't know what the process is. I do know that there are a number, there are a few steps. There's, there are designations that come before you're uh, recognized as a saint. Read somewhere that for, for a thousand years or so, this was kind of done a lot more locally. Uh, it was like maybe in the 12th century, something like that, when the Pope in the Roman church started getting involved. Like the late 1100s was the last saint who was named by whatever the previous process was. I honestly know very, very little about the process in itself. I do know that in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, the process, whatever it is, was simplified, and that even in even into the 1980s, under Pope John Paul II, the process was becoming um, simplified. There is a process that involves uh, justifying someone's sainthood to a jury, so to speak, and there's uh, somebody assigned to be uh, the devil's advocate. There's a Latin word for that position. That's the person who argues against the sainthood. There's a set of requirements. I don't think anybody knows. Regular people don't tend to know exactly what they are, but there are designations, the first of which is a servant of God. The next is a somebody is called venerable, which, again, uh, when we say Augustus Caesar, Augustus 
is not a name. His name was Octavian. Augustus means venerable. Another word for venerable might be heroic in virtue um, in the context of the church. So anyway, there's servant of God, there's a, a venerable, there's blessed, and that's beatification, uh, and that's the step before sainthood. Now, each of these has requirements, and I think to be, be beatified, somebody has to say uh, you, that you convince you know, the jury in the Vatican that uh, you were responsible, the saint candidate was responsible for a miracle, you know, and then when you be canonized, you better have performed two miracles. For the ordinary Catholic in the pews, it's just like this is the stuff that the, you know, the men in dresses do. And honestly, the day after Archbishop Romero was assassinated, people all over El Salvador were already calling him San Romero de las Americas, Saint Romero of the Americas. People didn't wait for the Vatican to declare it. They did celebrate like crazy in October 2018 when the Vatican finally caught up with the will of the people and officially canonized Archbishop Romero. We talked earlier about the uh, conquest of the Americas, and most Spaniard conquistadores did what Christopher Columbus, Cristobal Colón, did, which is just, you know, charge a gold tax, send money up the line to the crown, and do it in the name of... You know, Christopher Columbus once said, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's go on exporting all the slaves we can. It's a bunch of heinous Christopher Columbus quotes that we break out every Columbus Day and then call it Indigenous People's Day. And there were counter voices. And there was one counter voice in the midst of all of that named uh, Bartolome de las Casas, Bartholomew. And he is somebody who from the get-go understood, hey, you know how we're hanging people in trees by their throats because they're not converting to Jesus? Uh, maybe that's wrong. Easy for us to see right now in the context of Italian and Spanish people coming to the Americas, People didn't see the way of Jesus as the way of Jesus and haven't for much of the history of the church. And many don't today. Every time there's a war, there's a massive block of self-proclaimed Christians who delight in spilling the blood of the enemy across the world in ways that look very different than the way of the cross. So when there is that brave counter voice somebody in the context of the conquest for the Americas who said, no, these people, stop saying these people aren't human. They are human. Uh, they're worthy of God's love. Jesus died for them too. Like Bartolome de las Casas did, then you recognize that person. And you recognize that person in his context. You go, who was part of the kingdom movement? All of these people exporting slaves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or Bartolome de las Casas, who was denouncing that, living incarnationally among the indigenous people of Latin America, writing letters denouncing what we were doing, recognizing people as infinitely loved by God who Jesus died for. And you recognize him within his context so that we can remember him and go, you know what, there have been a string of people 
who are part of the revolutionary way of the cross and always have been. And so without canonization, maybe we wouldn't recognize St. Francis of Assisi, who, you know, left, took Jesus at his word when he said, sell everything. He, he left his dad's uh, textile business to go live among the poor and lepers, like literally with nothing, buck naked. And, and had a, a ministry that a lot of people would say that looked a heck of a lot like Jesus. So some of these people are recognized. I know that often there is concern, uh, oh, the Catholics, they, they worship those people. They have icons. Nah, I don't know. Maybe that happens in my experience. Icons are like, man, let's remember Romero. He was a really cool dude. Let's remember Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement because um, that is incarnational ministry. Let's remember Martin Luther King and his dream because his dream finds resonance with the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, and that finds resonance with the whole prophetic tradition into into the Old Testament. Now that the canon is closed on Scripture, as as Karl Barth called it, the paper pope, Let's have a canon of human beings whose lives look like Jesus and who we recall and observe them in their context because it's hard to see yourself sometimes in your own context. And that's, you know, that's why you listen to Micah's prophetic voice in his context. That's why Isaiah's voice means something within the context of Assyrian domination of Israel and Judah. And it's good that we remember Isaiah. And there's people who march to that tune throughout history, wherever you stand on whatever you've heard about veneration. Sometimes it's just good to recognize those people because the alternatives that we have for heroes in this world often aren't people who represent the kingdom of God that Jesus announced all that well. So previous to his canonization, the Vatican Council gathered and they beatified Archbishop Romero. And in the sky above them, there appeared a solar halo. And representatives of the Catholic Church looked, and frankly, they didn't know what to make of it. And among all the men sitting there in robes in their various distinctions as cardinal, priest, bishop, there were different people who chose to understand it in different ways. Maybe some of them said, maybe this is a sign from God. Maybe this is God's halo of approval of our canonization of Romero. There were surely others, maybe even the majority, who said, you know, when there's water crystals around the sun in a certain conditions, that's what happens. Certainly that day, somewhere in the world, there was a solar halo above a sinner who'd lived a life wholly unlike that of Romero, maybe a murderer, because God's that way. God's sun shines, God's rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. When the comet appeared over Rome after Julius Caesar was murdered by the conspirators on the Senate floor and his nephew 
Octavian, who inherited the throne, said, This is Julius being greeted by the gods. Do I think that was a sign from God? No, but a tree is known by its fruits. Julius Caesar was an emperor who tried to hide the fact that he was an emperor. That's what he was. And he lorded over people and he ruled through coercion and violence, as all kingdoms of this world do. Romero lived a life of love and service in the best way he knew how. He stood up for his convictions. He never succumbed to the temptation of violence. He forgave his enemies from the pulpit. So to me, I never know what to make of those kinds of miraculous things. I can tell you, I think I don't believe in them because they raise more difficult questions than they answer. But in my own life, I say that despite the evidence. I've got a number of stories that are just too uncanny to be coincidence. If you hear them, you say, can it be? And maybe this is one of those. I don't know if there's something that's kind of fun to think that that was a wink from the creator of the universe. And why not? I mean, the reality is God's winking at us all the time with all the love that's ever existed in his eyes. If we find this to be one way to accept it, why not? So I hope that answered some of the questions that we had on a, in a not-too-windbag uh, of a way. And if you, anybody who would like to learn more about Romero, you can check out the movie Romero, uh, starring Raul Julia. If you want to see more about the context of the war in El Salvador, Oliver Stone had a movie called Salvador starring James Wood and, and Jim Belushi, actually. Oliver Stone movies have a lot of Oliver Stone personality in them um so you, you get that for better or for worse kind of for worse but it it does do a good job of just like uh painting a picture of what it looked like during that war there's another movie by a mexican director and it's released in english as innocent voices it's called voces inocentes and it's actually an excellent movie exploring the phenomenon of child soldiers remember i said the way they recruited people to work in the war at that time was you stop a bus and you get kids between 14 and 30 and they're in the army now and this is a movie a, a, based on a true story about that phenomenon if you want to learn more about Romero there is the James Brockman biography of Romero there's a, a book edited by Maria Lopez Vigil called Memories in Mosaic and that is a, a little a mosaic of uh, kind of testimonies about Romero from everything from theologians to, you know, peasant, you know, subsistence farmers and everything in between. Earlier, I mentioned that book, uh, The Massacre at El Mosote by Mark Danner. That's an interesting read if you want to get into some of the, um, you know, how a government turns a blind eye to the atrocities that it sponsors. Uh, there was a book by Noam Chomsky called Turning the Tide, U.S. Intervention in Central America and the Struggle for Peace. Um, whatever you think about that dude, wow, he can keep a lot of information in that brain of his and remarkably accurate as I lived there and actually knew the players he was talking about because they were my neighbors and pretty remarkable. Those are the ones that I can think of, although I suspect that after this earful Maybe you've had enough, but if you hadn't, 
paul at paulthomasauthor.com. You can direct your questions to me.